in Sardis. On one particular occasion, uh, it is said that one of the men who were on the wall, his helmet had fallen off his head and had fallen down the side of the cliff. And in order to retrieve his helmet, he went down this very narrow path, then uh, a secret passageway, to retrieve his helmet. And uh, someone in the opposing army at, at the foot of the cliff saw where he had come down and how he got back up. And that was enough for him to pass that information along to, his, to the invading army. And they were able to go and sack the, um, the, the city of Sardis. If you remember in your Canadian history, it's very reminiscent of how uh, Wolf uh, uh, defeated the French in the plains of Abraham, defeating General Montcalm as they found that secret passageway, sailing up and down the St. Lawrence for uh, days, looking for a way in which they could get up onto the plains of Abraham. And they found this secret passage. They were able to go up and defeat uh, Montcalm and the, the French army there. Well, this is much the case here in Sardis. Jesus comes then to this church, which imbibes a lot of the characteristics of the city itself. This church itself had become so complacent that it was dead. That it was dead. And Jesus says as much in the verses that we will look at. And to that end, Jesus introduces himself in, as, as we've been seeing in different, in the different letters, according to the need or according to what's going on in that particular city. And here, Jesus introduces himself this way. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What is Jesus intending by introducing himself in that fashion. Well, we saw earlier on in the book of Revelation that God is not made up of seven spirits. Uh, there's not the Father, the Son, and then a collection of seven spirits. It's a way of Jesus describing the various functions and perfections of the one spirit of God. And so, for example, it is prophesied of, of Messiah in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, that very famous chapter that we read each, uh, oftentimes at Christmas time, uh, where it says of Jesus that uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and light, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, obviously, uh, the, the, the prophet is not describing the fact that Jesus is going to be inhabited by a multiplicity of different beings, but he is showing the richness, the ministry that Jesus will carry out through the perfections and power of the Holy Spirit. It is in that way that Jesus comes to the church in Sardis. They need his power. They need his grace. They need the uh, perfections of the Spirit of God to revive them, to quicken them, to reform them. And so he introduces himself 
uh, in this way. Sardis is a city that needs the life-giving power and presence that Jesus alone can give. And he's encouraging, of course, the church, those, that remnant of believers who were there, that he is offering himself to them in that way. That as dead as it looks, as bad as it, as it, has, as it has gotten, that they are not a hopeless, hopeless case. That Jesus is coming and uh, as he presents themselves, himself to them, so he presents himself to us here this morning. He who has the seven spirits. He is the one that will help us. He will revive us. He will reform us. He will draw us unto himself again. He who has the seven stars. He who has the authority. He bears authority over the, the leaders of the church and the churches themselves. And so this is Jesus' introduction. As he introduces himself uh, to each of the churches according to their need, according to what they must know, according to what the particular problem was in their situation. And so he, right out of the gate, he speaks to them of the things that he has against them. I know your works. This is a common refrain. He is the one that walks among the candlesticks. He is the one that walks among his people. He's the one who's here today with us. He, he is present with us. He knows our heart. He knows our works. He knows what we're thinking and feeling here today. And out of that emerges these letters. Out of that emerges this particular counsel to each one of these churches. And, as we've been seeing, the church down through the centuries collectively taken together in all of these letters. That it's describing the need of the church here uh, in all ages. And so he says to them, I know your works. That could be a very comforting thing. It could be a very discomforting thing. But going back to where the psalmist says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He owns that as a blessing. He owns that as a comfort. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You know when I go in and out. Before a word is on my lips, Lord, you know it all together. And Jesus is that Lord of Psalm 139 who knows his people. He knows what worries them, what keeps them up. He knows their temptations. You know, and so he's able. He is able to come to them and address them as they need. And so the psalmist there in Psalm 139 he says, search me, O Lord. I want more of that searching. I want more of that intimacy. Uh, keep me from the way in which the wicked are going. He, he, he speaks of that in Psalm uh, 139. As he looks at the, the evil and the wickedness that's going on around him. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, that, that is a very 
concise summary of what Jesus is saying to the churches. He's saying, I am the one that searches hearts and minds. I know you. There is a world of wickedness out there that is now shaping my church, and I have come to address that problem. And I have come to be with you. And, and he, the psalmist goes on, see if there be any grievous way in me. Jesus is saying, yes. I am answering that prayer. There are faithful people in each of those churches who are praying, just as there have been a faithful remnant in many churches down through the centuries who have prayed and kept the church from the brink of annihilation in, in certain localities where the Lord has revived his world. Search me, if, if, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist knows that there is a Great reward for those who seek the Lord, who prioritize first the kingdom of God. And so here, Jesus likewise speaks to the church, as we'll see in a few moments. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and so on. There's the path of eternal life. There's the, the riches and the rewards of the kingdom of God. And so we, we, we see that there's the book of Revelation, as we've been saying, it is, is new in, in many ways. There's lots of fresh discoveries, but as we have seen and will see, there's so much of the Old Testament there as well. And so it leans heavily upon the Old Testament, not simply the prophets, not simply Moses, but the Psalms as well. Looking for that character, reformation of character, looking for the priority of the worship of God and living uh, our lives in the presence of God the way we are. That was all there in the Psalms. That hunger, that thirsting, that longing that the psalmist embodied is also to be embodied now by the churches. And Jesus is so working among them as to create that mindset, that heart, that approach to him that the psalmist also had. And therefore, we, we, we find a great deal of profit as we sing the psalms together, as, together as we think through uh, what was important to the psalmist, his priorities in light of everything else in life. And so Jesus comes and he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. What an awful indictment. You have a reputation of being alive, but are dead. This has been the sorrowful case of the church down through the centuries in, in many places. That a lack of love for the Lord or a lack of life can be uh, uh, clothed and, and, and Camouflage by uh, perhaps busyness. Uh, churches can can uh, hide or seek to hide their lack of love for the Lord, their lack of delight in the gospel by uh, surrounding it with activities, busyness. They have and they have a reputation back of being alive. 
people, people will look at them and say, there is a church on the move. There's a church on the go. The doors are always open. There's always somebody coming in and coming out. And yet, Jesus is able to read hearts and minds. He says, the things that are important to me are not there. They're not part of your life in worship. They're not a part of your focus. The gospel. And he goes on to hint at that when he says later on, uh, remember then what you have received and heard. It's implying there in verse 4 that they had fallen from them. They had fallen from the focus on the person and work of Jesus. They had fallen from a focus on the gospel. And had substituted that focus for all sorts of things. That can be, in many ways, very praiseworthy. But there can be lots of good things going on in the church, but that never means that they can ever be a substitute for what is at the very heart. The message of the gospel and our love for God through Jesus. It doesn't matter how you dress things up. You can make a corpse look good, can't you? You've often heard people say that. That waits. You know, the person will be there. Oh, she never looked as good. He never looked as good. He looks like himself. Praising the, the person that's there. Uh, that's not very flattering to hear that. Oh, they, they just look like themselves. Please don't say that about me. Uh, but you can you can make some you know, people are amazed sometimes. Oh, this is great. This is amazing. And we can have that same reputation. We can look very uh, appealing on the outside and get every appearance of life. And yet, at the very core, there's something else going on. And so Jesus. Uh, just brings it to the uh, ahead when he says to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you are whitewashed tombs who look very beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones. What's, what's God, what's Jesus calling us to here? But to think very carefully about who we are. To think, to, to look at ourselves, to look at our lives, and to say, do I simply have the outward appearance, the outward form, or as Paul says, having the form of godliness, but denying the power. The form of godliness. In other words, the church in Sardis could have been a very moral church. They could have been talking about family values. They could have been writing letters to their local MP and all sorts of things about things that are going on in society. Their youth group could have been thriving and so on. And yet, there was something fundamental. Much like the church in Ephesus, they had lost their first love. They had lost the focus of the gospel. They had lost that true sense of heart reformation, not outward reformation. You can teach people all sorts of things about being moral, bring them up in a Christian home or a Christian society, and they imbibe Christian principles in their lives. And then they come into the church, and they become very faithful to coming 
to church on a weekly basis, giving and going to the Lord's table and having been baptized and all the rest of it. And yet, we are to be extremely careful to not substitute those things for the real thing. And that is where we keep close accounts with God. We go to God. We ask God. We pray that prayer of the psalmist. Search me and know me. Lord, help me not to substitute anything for my relationship with you. Do I really and truly live? John Scott says we need to remember that the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Quoting 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel says to, uh, 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 to David's father, Jesse, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what he's doing here. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What an indictment. Even the, the good things that we do can appear to make us to be alive. To appear before others as being there is the model church, there is the model Christian. But what is the motive behind all of that? Jesus also gets down to brass tacks when he, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. See, what were they doing? They were giving to the needy. They were doing all these things. They had a, a reputation of being alive, a reputation of being generous and busy, being very moral even. But it was coming from wrong motives. What were those? That they may be praised by others. So this rebuke comes. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And so what is this counsel in all of this? Wake up and strengthen what remains and it's about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. This is his counsel. He says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names and service, people who have not soil their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The city of Sardis, again, Jesus is using things that they will understand, things that they can connect to what he's saying. The city of Sardis was famous for its textile industry. But these in the church had soiled their garments with worldliness, with sin, and with, with others' uh, uh, iniquities that Jesus may be alluding to here, they have soiled their garments. They have become a part of the world. They have let the world shape them more than the word of God. And so he tells them, he says to them, awake and strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
There were some. Verse 4 it says, you have still a few names in service. People who have not soiled their garments. There was a faithful remnant. The church as a whole seemed dead and was dead and it seemed like it, it had lost the point. But there was a remnant there and that he was appealing to. That they strengthen what remains and is about to die. You can think of how this has played itself out in church history in the past. State of religion in England and New England before Whitfield and Wesley went into the open air. State of religion was abysmal. It was terrible. You can read uh, J.C. Ryle's account of uh, some of these great men. We have several copies downstairs. And he has a chapter in that about what England was like before the revivals came, before these great men came and preached. And many have said that, that the British Isles would have fallen into the same situation as the bloody revolution of French Revolution in the 1780s. That it would have gone down the same road had not the Spirit of God come and revived the people of those nations, the people of those uh, the people of that island. And I think that is very true. That these people were moving in the very same direction. That godlessness was, was on the rise. That Church attendance had fallen to a, a great low. Where was the society headed but to the same fate that met the revolution in France, where the streets flowed with blood? But they, but God began by His Spirit to raise up these great preachers. And these were only a couple of, of the great preachers that God had raised up, not, not just in Britain, but also in New England as well, as Whitfield and Edwards and, and others preached there. And they went and they spoke about God. They spoke about sin and righteousness and judgment. They preached the whole counsel of God, and the Lord blessed them. They, they took seriously what Jesus is saying here. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Keep it and repent. That's where our, our focus must always be. Taking us back to the gospel. Taking us back to first principles. Remember what he says? Uh, I believe it was, yes, to the church in Thyatira. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, the teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned what some have called the deep things of Satan, this ungodly teaching, leading people into sexual immorality, I lay, I do not lay on you any other burden. In other words, we're not going to reinvent the wheel because this new problem has come. He says, the gospel, and always the gospel, is where we ought to be and ought to return, and ought to celebrate. And it is out of that 
discovery of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ as we sing about it. It never grows old, does it? We talk about it every week. It's not a Christian sermon unless Jesus is preached. Unless the, the, the cross is proclaimed. And it's the same reason why Paul says, May I glory in nothing except the cross of Christ by which I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. And it was out of this that the people would live lives of, that are worthy of the gospel. It is out of this that reformation would come to Sardis as people turn to God. And with the help of the Holy Spirit began to reapply the first principles of the gospel to their lives again. How important the work of the Spirit is there. As Jesus begins by saying the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. And then he concludes by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To awaken, to return, to revive is to realize that in and of ourselves, we don't have it. We don't have the wherewithal to remain faithful. We don't have the wherewithal to make progress as a church or individuals in the Christian life. It's a supernatural faith from beginning to end. In fact, if you are dead unto these things, if you are dead on, if, if it makes no difference to you, if, it, if, if there's no attractiveness in your life this morning to the things of the gospel, the Bible says you must be born again. There must be a supernatural act of the Spirit of God upon your life. But then even after becoming a believer, it is the work of the Spirit of God that continues to work in us, uphold us, continue to revive us, and cause us to walk in the ways that Jesus would have us walk in. So, he says, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it. Repent. Remember what you have what you have heard. Hold on to it. Hold fast. Paul says in first in Second Timothy four, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Bringing us back to the word, preaching the word, not just simply uh, the word in general, but preaching the. Let the focus be on the gospel itself. Be ready in season and out of season. Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. This is where it comes back to all the time. Paul tells us, tells us in the book of Acts that Paul on another missionary journey, went to Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Going back into those regions that he had been before, strengthening them. What was he doing? Reminding them. How does he write to the Galatians? Let me remind you. How does he write to the uh, Corinthians? Let me remind you of the gospel that I preached unto you and that you received. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures. That he was seen by over five. What was Paul reminding them about? He was reminding them of the gospel. 
The first principles, taking them back to the very beginning. And then the consolation. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. That's speaking of the, the, uh, the purity on, on two levels. The purity of, of the righteousness that is given to us by Jesus. And the, 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 uh, the holiness of, and the purity that God works in his church by his spirit. One person has said that people who wore white garments for festivals and sacred ceremonies and, and, and Roman celebrations, but here they signify the purity, cleansing of the people of God. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There is a security there. Often in these cities and these towns, there was a register kept where people's names were written down. If they died or if they perhaps committed a crime, their name was taken out. But the security for the people of God is that their names are never going to be removed from the Lamb's book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels in verse 5. This is, this is the delight then that Jesus sees in a church that is taking his word seriously. That awakens, that goes back to the gospel. Friends, I mean, think of the gospel. Why does Jesus say, go back to first Corinthians, go back to the gospel? Because there, our salvation was wrought. There is the, the glory of God was never ever seen in any way apart from as it was on the cross of Calvary. And so he takes us back there. And it's for that reason Jesus is willing to say, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's how approving Jesus is of those who would take him seriously in this way. I will confess his name. In other words, if we fail to do these things, if we neglect to do these things, if we deny him, as many in churches much like our own do every Sunday. People who hear about Jesus, hear about God's love in the cross, and they walk in and out of that church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. No, no, no. Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father and Whoever confesses me, and this is what the church of Sardis were being called to, to confess Jesus. That in all their activity, that at the heart of it would be this bold profession. This glorious teaching that they rejoiced and delighted, as Paul says, in nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus says, that must be accepted. And when that is there, I am glad to own your name before the Father. When that is part of your own personal experience, where you're owning me before men, before your family, before your friends, I am more than glad, more than willing to say to my Heavenly Father, here is the one in whom I delight. Here is the one who I purchased with my blood, filled with my spirit, guided by my word, 
will give my kingdom to you. Jesus delights then in that. And so he says to the church, I will confess his name before you. What wonderful incentive then we have, friends, to search our hearts today, to say, where am I in all of this? Where are we as a church? In the light of what Jesus, the one who walks among us and knows us so well, searches hearts and minds, can we say it any more emphatically? What does that say about where it ought to take us? What ought to be our next step? But to awaken, to come back to the gospel, to ensure that our focus is continually there, to keep his word, to be repentant of our sins, to be looking to him. He is the one who knows us in this way. He who died, he who rose again, who gives his spirit, he who walks among the, the candlesticks, he who is among the churches. And I pray that it's our desire then this morning to not be satisfied with the status quo. If this morning you have found yourself coming to church on a regular basis, and yet these things mean the same to you as they ever have. They perhaps mean nothing to you. No appeal that you call upon the living God this morning. Ask him to open your eyes, open your understanding, that you might know and believe what God has done through Jesus Christ for the souls of sin, what he has done to save sin. And that he might save you. And that those of us who do know him, that we would not be satisfied with a complacent life as it was with the, those in Sardis. That we never let the world, we, that we are not conformed to the world, but that we are those who are transformed by the word of God. That God would revive us and stir us up again to make him the priority in our church and in our lives. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, as we close this morning, we pray that you, you would be among us here today. Lord, you are the one that searches hearts and minds. Grant, oh God, your presence here today by your power. Lord, if there be any here today who are yet strangers to your grace, your power, who do not know the, the beauty of our Savior in the gospel of Jesus. We pray, O oh Father, that you would make that known to them. And that, O oh Father, those of us who have professed your name, Lord, that we would not give way to complacency, but Lord, that you would be stirring us up, that you would be reviving us, that we would always be going back to first principles, and that we, O oh Lord, would be continually walking before you as you would have us do. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's turn in uh, our last song.